What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, breaking news in brokerages. Charles Schwab in talks to acquire TD Ameritrade. Add the market caps together. When this company exists, it's going to be a $90 billion company. Political pollster Frank Luntz on the highlights from Wednesday night's Democratic debate and his bold call for 2020. Let's be clear. There is no front runner. And Washington and Silicon Valley meet again. Recode's Kara Swisher is not impressed by the president's relationship with Apple CEO Tim Cook. It's not a bromance. Let's, not, let's try not to use that. When President Trump called him Tim Apple, he shouldn't point it out. It's, you know, he's saying something awkward. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Thursday, November 21st, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up today, a story Becky broke just minutes before Squawk Box went to air at 6 o'clock this morning. Charles Schwab, the largest publicly traded discount broker, is reportedly in talks to buy the second largest publicly traded discount broker, TD Ameritrade. This is part of an ongoing disruption in the brokerage industry. Here's a refresher. When trading stocks, retail investors, basically individuals investing for themselves and not for an organization, pay a commission or fee to the broker or e-brokerage who completes the trade on their behalf. Of course, it's not as great a deal for the investors as it is for the companies that collect those fees and have consequently faced pressure to reduce them. And reduce them, they have. J.P. Morgan Chase unveiled a free trading app in August, and within two months, all the other major brokerages had followed suit, or at least announced plans to follow suit. TD Ameritrade and Charles Schwab among them. But here's the rub. The commissions contribute to the revenue of the brokerages who collect them, and eliminating that revenue stream has worried shareholders. At any rate, the industry is changing. Here's Becky with today's story. Charles Schwab Corporation in talks to buy TD Ameritrade, and a deal could be announced as early as today. That move, if it happens, would consolidate an industry that's been going through massive disruption. Calls to Schwab and TD Ameritrade have not been returned, but obviously the entire complex seems to be moving on this. Joining us right now to talk more about this is Mike Santoli. And um, Mike, what do you think? Uh, Obviously, you know, blockbuster deal, both stocks being up tells you that the market believes this area is crowded, there's too much capacity, and there's great synergies in a deal for cutting costs. I think that the going to zero commissions was a sign that the competition for retail assets had gotten to that stage. And also, uh, it's not just in commissions, right? I mean, the whole industry is going to very low-fee uh, exchange-traded funds, these, these kind of software-based you know, advisory services where it's a very low fee. So all that stuff has been constant pressure. And I do think that you had Ameritrade take the biggest hit, really, in total market cap from that zero commission move, much more leverage to the trading business. Um, It's been an industry that's gotten rolled up 
a lot over the past decades, but this would be a real step up in that activity because you had had a bit of a low. And it's interesting, you mentioned E-Trade being down. Now, E-Trade is kind of vacillated about potentially being a seller, being in play. It's been considered a potential target. And Schwab and Ameritrade, obviously, would be two of the obious buyers, potentially. So you're not going to so, see a buy coming from one of those. And, in places. fact, Ameritrade typically viewed as a acquirer. Uh, in fact, maybe that's why some of the, the valuation was a little bit depressed, because they just did buy Scott Trade, uh, and it's unclear if they were going to continue to maybe be a buyer. Also, one interesting thing about this is both companies still have kind of the founder families with ownership. Um, this is the first generation of this industry. It's never been passed down, really. So it's, it's sort of a fascinating uh, thing in that regard. Yeah, Joe talked about that earlier, just about how this industry came out of nowhere. And I, I think it's going, I don't know. It, it add, the, add the market caps together. Yeah. When this company exists, it's going to be a $90 billion company for how long? Sure. Really? Well, to how long is it? How long are we going to be in a bull I don't know. I, just, I know. But I just think that I, there's a lot that, that's going to come out of this. What's industry? the value of $3 trillion in assets? Of customer know. assets that you can glean some kind of effect right. off of, or whatever, and that's that's the <laughs> they better the do math, some. Th- right? I mean, they would do some serious rationalization. Like yes, that. and there's well, parts of this business, part of and yeah. I think they're they're culturally very different, and right. I do think they've gone head to head in an aggressive way to be the back end operations servicer of registered investment advisors, which is basically the fastest growing part so of the, retail. The, the questions I'd ask are. Do you think that the, what kind of savings do you think you can really wring out of a combined company like this? I mean, in terms of is this back in technology? I think it's, it's the marketing lot. dollars. The marketing dollars Absolutely. are going to be big money. Cost of account acquisition right. is one of the leading costs. And technology is probably the leading cost. So put them together. You're combining headquarters. Remember, I mean, TD Ameritrade, right? You had TD bought Waterhouse. Ameritrade had bought Thinkorswim. There were all, it was really right. a fragmented. So people know the playbook in terms of putting these companies together, rationalizing and trying to retain all the customers and getting the, you know, kind of picking the best operations that you have among the two companies. So I do think, I don't know the magnitude of right. it, I haven't seen the estimates, but the market is telling you the efficiency. And you think this is a response to fintech, effectively? It's a response to, yeah, to the... To the mean, this is the Robin Hood, well, you know, venture capital subsidized businesses that are now pressuring these other guys to consolidate. I think that's the most recent catalyst, but even the development of those Robin Hoods and the, the fintech businesses just reflect the fact that retail finance has become software. Right. Um, I mean, even if you look at, at a Merrill Lynch, what they've been doing with their human advisors right. is skewing them upscale and making well, sure that they have high minimum. Tra- you know, for all of uh, David Solomon's efforts at Goldman Sachs yeah. to try to get some sticky money in there, which is what that Marcus business is all about, why doesn't a traditional play, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that, that David Solomon go buy TD Ameritrade and sure. jump into this situation, but you'd think that all of these players would there, therefore be up for grabs for some of the classic sort of That's old school Wall It's not cars. beyond the realm at all. Right. Uh, there's a huge chunk of all of the integrated brokers like Mike Merrill, where it is basically, you know, Merrill Edge or whatever right. they call it, where they kind of shunt you into a automated kind of call center type thing. Right. Um, and so... You know, it, it's not incompatible with something like, I mean, I think for Goldman, they could say, look, we have the in- infrastructure, we right. have all the, all the exchange memberships, we have the back end, we could do it ourselves, Coast. or we could bolt right. something into it. A digital bank that raised more than $100 million from investors, including movie studio star uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, has run into some trouble this morning. Join us right now is CNBC.com banking reporter. Who's done? What, what's going on, Hugh? Yeah, so this is, this is the bank that tried to be the first green, socially conscious online digital bank. It's, right. It was 
Form- which I never even understood what that meant, but we can talk about that in a moment. Yeah. So they, it was created about five years ago, and, and they have this business model where you pay what you want to, and your deposits are going to be you know, uh, fossil fuel free. And they, they guaranteed all these things, and they had some momentum, apparently. And what we heard is essentially that they ran into trouble. So this year, the funding uh, situation is not quite, the risk appetite from VC investors not quite what it was a year ago. And, right. and so now that their Series C is basically up in the air, and they fired 15% of their staffers, they've stiffed some vendors, and these are all signs of financial distress to me personally. So green, you don't mean green, you mean woke green. Right? Essentially, yes. <laughs> I, I, want all, I want them all to live fossil-free lives. I just want them to live fossil-free lives. Can you, it's harder, can you, it's huh? harder to do that. No, I want them that. to do that. Go live yeah. a fossil-free life. See how you like it. I want them to do that. Can they? So, so this, is, and this is the type of thing that would attract the Leo DiCaprio to become an advisor and investor in the company. Right? And the likes of Orlando Bloom and you know, right. Doc Rivers. So and my such. question to you is how much money do you think he has actually in the company? How much of it is him lending his name to the company? And what happens yeah. as a result of all of this? Well, no, I mean, with Leo specifically? Yeah. I mean, these are, this is the case of a celebrity basically getting, an, you know, he probably has some kind of great deal where he lends his name, right. puts in a, a token amount like Jay-Z did with the Nets, right. and gets the aura of, and gives them the aura of his, his, his fame, essentially. Right. So he gives them the aura of his fame, and the question, though, is if the company goes under or has real trouble, do, right. do they give him the aura of their problem? Yeah, I mean, potentially, right? But, I mean, nothing that this company hasn't done anything wrong, to be clear. Right. I mean, for, for what, from what I can understand, they're basically, they have a business model that's difficult to maintain. And with, as you guys know, with money burning, you know, startups these days, it's, it's a harder pitch. Right. What, when you say that the business model has a problem, what's the, what's the right. fundamental so, issue? The, the unit economics of this, of, of these new online banks are questionable. Right. right? Essentially, like... Customer acquisition costs are so high. How do you make money from these people? That's why every you know fintech startup you right. know, under the sun is adding checking accounts, okay, so adding again, all these though, other to bring it free back brokerage to, trades. Again, to bring it back to the, the day's big news, Charles Schwab, exactly. you know, in talks yeah. to ITD Ameritrade. Yeah. How much of that is a function yeah. of these companies, as we were talking about earlier, all subsidized by Silicon Valley, losing it's a ton PC. of money, yeah. and yet? The traditional guys have to somehow compete against yeah, them, yeah. and there's a and feeling pressure to consolidate to somehow deal with it. It's it's all in the mix. It's all in the mix. And if you look at this specific, the new bank, Challenger Bank, Silo, you know they've got Chime, they've got Varo, they've got the Europeans. One of the insiders at this company, Aspiration, said it's like the second invasion of the Beatles because you have Monzo, you have Revolut from the UK coming in. These are huge Challenger banks that have a lot more investment a lot more you know, momentum, right. they're coming to the U.S. And if you're a VC investor, do you want to say, well, I'm going to put my money in aspiration or perhaps one of these guys who are already proven overseas? It's, it's really increasingly tough for these guys. And when, when the market turns, this is what I'm curious about. So you're going to see these big deals like the Charles Schwab TD kind, yeah, of, kind sure. of deal. But when, in fact, the market turns, and we were talking about this earlier, the big guys, do you think they get swoop in and buy everybody? So there's going to be a whole fintech yeah, yeah. world that's because they're going to really and the fintech guys will really start to hurt. There's going to be consolidation. Right. There's going to be failures. We don't know when. But the VCs I talked to said it's kind of like tying two drunks together and thinking that they're going to start walking straight after that. Some of these companies that get merged together in the fintech space, they're not going to do great anyway. Not going to do great anyway. And then what about I mean, 
the J.P. Morgans of the world, do you think they pick up some of these guys? J.P. Morgan doesn't need them. I mean, arguably, you could look at, you know, a Goldman Marcus. Yeah, we talked say, about Goldman yeah, earlier. Right. Say in a distressed situation, Marcus decides to pick up something with a lot more scale than they do and immediately go and jump, you know, a couple ranks up in terms of being a consumer, direct-to-consumer player. Right. I mean, I think that's possible. But again, we're not at that stage yet. I think this is potentially an early sign of that. Okay. Did you reach out? Is Leo saying anything on the record? <laughs> we haven't heard from him yet. Yeah. You, you found, find him, like, in the... In the, in the Caribbean somewhere? Yeah. I don't know about that. Swam down. Right Usually, you know, you just pick a bus magazine. You can figure out where he, where he is he, at any moment. He's flying in a jet. Yeah, he swam down. And using a lot of fossil, f- oh, fossil fuel free light for, for Leo. Stop it. He's trying to. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, you know Thank what? you. And you can check out what the story. Read, on... read your lines. That's like, read that's like, that's read like my that. lines? No, read your lines. Oh. No, that's. But like, no, I love him in Once Upon a Time. Yeah, exactly. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Love him. Love him and love Brad. Again. Movie. Love him. I watched it. I yeah, paid I've seen it twice. For it. Love, did you? He thought it was slow. Uh, I, I, you never saw any of this. In, until the end. Until the end, but I don't want to give anything away. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, pollster Frank Luntz on the Democratic candidate's latest debate. The question for the Democratic Party is, does it want to please its base, who really don't like the people on Wall Street, or does it want to seek the center? And his bold call for what might happen if no candidate gets enough support in 2020. You don't want to miss this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Track Pro A. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. One, cue, please. Democrats facing off on the debate stage Wednesday night. Joining us right now from Los Angeles for debate analysis is political strategist and pollster Frank Luntz. Frank, it's good to see you. Great great to be here. Okay, let's talk about some of the key moments from last night. Let's run through some of these. You tell us what you think. First up, Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, facing criticism from fellow Democratic candidate Cory Booker. Listen in. We want to build an America that works for the people, not one that just works for rich folks. You know, I have proposed a two-cent wealth tax. That is a tax for everybody who has more than $50 billion in assets. So when you make it big, when you make it really big, when you make it top one-tenth of one percent big, pitch in two cents so everybody else gets a chance to make it. Senator Booker, do you agree with that strategy? I don't agree with the wealth tax, the way that Elizabeth Warren puts it, uh, but I agree that we need to raise the estate tax. We need to tax capital gains as ordinary income, real strategies will increase revenue. But here's a challenge. We as Democrats need to fight for a just taxation system, but as I travel around the country, we Democrats also have to talk about how to grow wealth as well. Uh, So Frank, what do you think? There's Elizabeth Warren's position that we know well, Cory Booker stepping to the right of that. Who wins? We are just 100 days away, less than 100 days from the first vote in Iowa. And it's interesting that this is the first time that someone on the debate stage actually challenged Senator Warren directly, that there's a battle within the Democratic Party. This exchange illustrates that about 60 percent want to be confiscatory. They want to raise taxes as high as they possibly can. They blame it on the millionaires and billionaires. They blame corporate America. And Cory Booker spoke for the 40 percent of the Democrats who believe 
that we can't be as anti-corporate, that you can't basically create a tax system that punishes success. And I think that that's going to be a significant debate going forward and that we're going to hear this battle back and forth. And the question for the Democratic Party is, does it want to please its base, who really don't like the people on Wall Street, or does it want to seek the center, wants to defeat Trump, and provide a tax system that is not so confiscatory? How much of this do you think because Pete Buttigieg has stepped up in the polls in Iowa? Well, let's be clear. There is no frontrunner. You cannot say that Joe Biden is the frontrunner or Mayor Pete or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. We now have four. And again, as we are this close, we have not seen a race in modern times where four candidates could legitimately claim to be leading the Democratic contest. Now, they are trying to compare themselves to Donald Trump, and on that they are unified. But on a host of other issues, these four candidates disagree significantly, and that's why these debates are so important. All right. Speaking of Pete Buttigieg, let's bring up a moment from him from last night, too. Listen in. We are going to have to unify a nation that will be as divided as ever and, while doing it, address big issues that didn't take a vacation for the impeachment process or for the Trump presidency as a whole, a climate approaching the point of no return. The fact that we've still got to act on health care, kids learning active shooter drills before they learn to read, and an economy where even when the Dow Jones is looking good, far too many Americans have to fight like hell just to hold on to what they've got. Frank, what do you think? So I'm asked repeatedly, why is he doing so well? And if you went back to the discussion we had about three months ago, he's the number one choice as everyone's second choice. He is the most positive of all the candidates in presenting his platform. He is the least likely to criticize others, even though he's doing so well in Iowa and New Hampshire. He handled all the criticism yesterday effectively, and his language appeals to independents. I think that he's going to continue to rise nationally. But, of course, his number one challenge, why isn't he doing better among African-Americans? He's going to have to prove that he can at least get 10 percent of that vote in these primaries because they are so essential to winning the Democratic nomination. Frank, maybe it's not as interesting who the top four are. It's who's not in the top four. I mean, there's a lot of people that really want Bloomberg to, to you know, to start rising in it, it just as a possibility. Or Deval Patrick, uh, the Massachusetts uh, governor. You see any of those, either one of those uh, gentlemen getting into the top tier? Candidly, at this point, I believe that, well, first off, I think in the end, Mike Bloomberg won't run. I think if he was going to run, he would have made that very clear by this point. And you and I had this discussion about two weeks ago. You think he's uh, not? So you think he's not running? In the end, I think he will decide not to do it because the polling in these Democratic states are not good for him. But he's missing or, or analysts are missing an important point. By the time they get to Super Tuesday, these top four candidates will have spent tens of millions of dollars on just a few votes. Mike Bloomberg will have hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on Super Tuesday. I think the equation for him to participate is as strong today as it was back then. But I don't believe that the analysts are, are covering this accurately, that they cannot look ahead to the way things will be on March 3rd. They're considering how they are in November of uh, 2019. What, what about the idea that if there's still no clear front runner as you get towards the Democratic convention, the national convention, that maybe <coughs> there's no candidate that wins on a first vote? And well, then there, maybe that opens it up for somebody like a Bloomberg. So let's look. That's a great question. And let's look at the Democratic primary rules. There are no winner take all. In most of these states, if you get 15 percent of a congressional vote, you'll pick up a delegate. 
So as long as a candidate can get 15 or 20 percent of that state, they're going to be picking up delegates, making it almost impossible for someone to get a majority. But I'll tell you this, if the, if the convention is deadlocked, it's going to take someone from outside the system to be able to unify the party. And right now, the only person I could see doing that, quite frankly, and this may surprise you, is Michelle Obama. If they are deadlocked, I could see a convention turning to her. But let's focus on what's happening right now. Can you do that? What, what are the rules? If you haven't run on any ballot on any state, you can kill, still get put in if they don't have a, anybody who takes all at some point? Yes, those are the rules. And it has to go through a certain number of ballots. I believe that it is two. And then delegates Ray, I, released. But I every just state's want to got stop a different you rule. on the, the Michelle Obama idea for just one second, because it is so very clear, at least to me, and I think to anybody who knows Michelle Obama, that her interest, interest in being back in that White House is about, uh, you know, is less than zero. So I, I, I'm not sure why. I mean, I, I understand the impulse and, and, and that there's a, a lot of people who like her, but I, I can't imagine that she would be up for that. Well, I can't imagine the deadlock convention because we've talked about this now for decades. But the, the rules of the Democratic Party are clear. The delegates are opened up in later ballots. And if there are too many votes spread across too many candidates, and we now have four candidates that are raising millions and millions of dollars every single week, and they will continue to do so, with four candidates or even three that are competitive and have the financial backing to run, then it is very difficult to put together a majority for anyone. Frank, it's great to see you. Thank you very much, and we'll talk again soon. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Silicon Valley whisperer Kara Swisher takes on political ad policy online. It's a reevaluation by all these companies of how they operate. And yesterday's presidential photo op with the world's most profitable company. Apple allowed him to create a lie around it, which is that he's opened a manufacturing plant looking like he's bringing jo- Apple jobs to the United States. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Stand by, Joe. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ Market Site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kern along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Now, a tech check. Social media companies Facebook and Twitter have recently staked out their territory on how they'll handle political ads. And the two plans couldn't be more different. Facebook essentially allows paid advertising. And the company says it is not in the business of fact-checking. So if a candidate lies, that lie could make its way right to the Facebook feed of potential voters. 
In contrast, Twitter plans to ban all political ads, those having to do with candidates, parties, elected officials, and actual elections. What's murkier are their plans to allow issues-based ads that don't advocate a special political or legislative outcome. Now, Google is weighing in. The search giant says it will accept political ads, but it will police those with false claims and only let advertisers target consumers based on broad categories like age and gender. That's where we started with Kara Swisher, co-founder and executive editor at Recode and a CNBC contributor on Squawk Box this morning. Are you satisfied, given I know your very strong views about the mistakes Mm -hmm. and missteps that I think you, you, you think that Facebook took in terms of how they approached advertising relative to the way Google is now going to do it? Well, Facebook didn't do anything. They just said, let anything happen. And I think that was my issue with it. I think, you know, it started off symbolically by Twitter, because Twitter is a very small part of this political ad ecosystem. But what they did is they said, we're going to take a pause and not take any. And that's the most extreme version of what's happening here. I think what's great is that all these companies, and including Facebook, by the way, they're reevaluating things, even if they they sort of stand firm initially on the idea of what they're going to do about political advertising. But it's a reevaluation by all these companies of how they operate. And so Twitter's not going to have any because they can't handle them and they took a pause. Google's doing something much more uh, subtle, which was also suggested by uh, Ellen Weintraub and many others of the FEC, which is, you know, we're only going to we're only going to use targeting in a very specific and broader way. And we're going to take out egregiously false ads. And I think that's, you know, it's 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 not I, I don't know what I would do, but I think it's actually a thoughtful way to approach it. Uh, now, Google has a different issues. They have search and they have YouTube, and YouTube is more like television. Search is more like uh, direct ads or mailings because right. people have to pull the search in. And so they're right. a very different business than Facebook, which whose business is all about targeting. Um, and, and so it's a good move by Google. It's a good uh, PR move by them. It also makes sense given their businesses. Right. And it actually shows some responsibility of but, thinking about But here's about the this. question. What's going to sure. happen? And, and is there going to be a, a, you know, headlines about hypocrisy when and if either uh, an ad with some kind of false claim either gets through the system yeah. and or they block something and then you have a politician come out and say that's actually yeah. not false. It's in the eye of the beholder, right? This, this is the sort of where the conundrum lies. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that happens on television. It happens in, in newspapers. This happens not infrequently other places. I think that what they're trying to do is align themselves more with practices that other media have. I think that's what it's closer to because their businesses are closer to that. I mean, you could say YouTube ads are like television ads. And of course, right. things are going to flip through, slip through completely. Um, and there's going to be problems. But I think the concept is this is a big company that actually has a big, this is a big business for, if you, if you're going to really attack this problem, which it is a problem. You need to go right. to Facebook and Google. Does and so this it, it's force a question the issue of whether it moves Facebook. Right. I think that'll that be was my question. Do you think it forces the issue for Facebook? I mean, are we going to be hearing from Facebook, you think, in the next week, two weeks, 30 days with a new, with an updated, uh, updated plan that looks more like this? I, you know, I have done a prediction about this, the idea that they're going to do something. Carol Neverson was on stage uh, with Peter Kafka at Code Media this week, and she said, oh, no, we're not evaluating. And then she had to walk it back. And in Carol Neverson of Facebook, we should say, right? She is. I'm sorry. Yep. She's a she's a big ad executive at yep. Facebook. And so they're obviously evaluating it and they're trying to figure out what to do because they're going to be sort of caught in the squeeze as the only uh, the only company that's allowing false ads and, and right. people can target them. And it's not a great look for them, and it actually draws them into the political right. uh, problems without right. any benefit whatsoever. The other Silicon Valley and D.C. intersection on our radar this morning, Tim Cook and President Trump. It's an unlikely pair with a curious past. 
Tim Cook, the man who leads Apple, a company nestled in the heart of left-leaning Silicon Valley, the man who hosted a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton in 2016, is now one of the CEOs on good terms with President Donald Trump. The only one that calls me is Tim Cook. He calls me whenever there's a problem. He'll call. Despite the president's infamous introduction slip. You've really uh, put a big investment in our country. We appreciate it very much, Tim Apple. Tim Cook has remained somewhat of an ally, it seems. We're very proud to be a part of it. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank you. Great job. Thank you. Thank you very much. And on Wednesday, this relationship held steady. The two met in Texas at a plant that manufactures Apple Macs. But Kara Swisher pointed out on Twitter that the president is making a claim that Apple opened this plant in the United States under Trump's leadership, which isn't exactly true. The plant has been operating since 2013, and it isn't even run by Apple. Here's the rest of Kara's interview, including why she finds that particular claim so problematic. I'm curious about your thoughts about uh, this bromance between Tim Cook and uh, Mm -hmm. President Trump, Uh, the tour that took place uh, yesterday uh, in Austin, uh, and some of your very strong views, which I've seen you writing on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not a bromance. Let's not. Let's try not to use that. I don't think that's what it is. He was touring, a, you know, presidents tour factories and things like that. What I think the issue and and you know when and when President Trump called him Tim Apple, he shouldn't point it out. It's you know he's saying something awkward and and stuff like that. He was visiting a plant and that that Apple has been operating in since 2013. It's not even Apple's plant. And he the, Apple allowed him to create a lie around it, which is that he's opened a manufacturing plant looking like. Like he's bringing jo- Apple jobs to the United States. Apple has 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 MacBooks uh, manufactured there by another company. And again, Tim Cook wrote about it in 2013. Like we're making these Macs in the United States. Um, they're also op- operate going to be opening another campus in Austin soon, uh, which is laudable. Right. These are all laudable things. But to allow themselves to be part of a, what is going to be probably a false campaign ad on Facebook. I mean, this, by the this, way, there's this, an ad already, Kara. I don't know if you saw the White House put out a video ad. Of Effectively, yeah. Um, so there you of go. This episode on Twitter, it's uh, it's you can go view it right now. All but, right. But I think the question that I'd ask you is, I mean, there's sort of a Faustian bargain here, which is sure. that, that Tim Cook is trying to protect the franchise that is Apple, trying yes. to protect uh, the, this tariff issue. Is this, uh, I mean, in the balance of all of, of all of these things? is being part of a PR uh, opportunity with the president, effectively, and allowing this to take place. Is that, is that a fair deal? Uh, you know, there's a PR opportunity and then there's a lie, right? Like le- allowing yourself to be subject to a lie. You know, I was very critical when all the tech executives right. went to meet Trump and didn't say anything about immigration at the beginning of this, uh, in the beginning of this administration. But this is a, this is being part of a line, being part of a campaign ad. And it's very different. And it's not, you know, it's not the Tim Cook I know to do it this far. And I get that they need uh, uh, relief in tariffs. I get that there's they've been pulled into this, these China, these, these difficulties with China that Trump, uh, you know, has been negotiating. But it's a different thing to be pulled into a campaign ad that is actually a lie. Maybe if it was true, I guess, okay. But the the, the other side of it Mm -hmm. is if if he didn't do this and the company got hit on on the tariffs and the president wasn't willing to help, if he spoke out against the president and the president then went after him the same way, you know, obviously there's speculation that the president went after uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon with the Pentagon contract, uh, all of a sudden... That, that's, that would be, have a real, um, that would create a real problem 
Bravo. Sure, but it's not going after someone to point out a lie. I don't. I don't. I don't know where I, we've gotten in this country. I appreciate that. Lie I'm with you not, on this, but I'm just. It, I'm just suggesting. Well, yeah, sure. So he lets someone lie about a, a really wonderful company that has had years of really great reputational issues around their products. It's a great product. I use it all the time, and obviously Apple's been caught in all kinds of controversy around China or whatever it is. But the fact of the matter is, to be to be subject to a, a, an egregious lie. And part of a campaign ad is just, I don't know, I just feel like there's other ways to get your point of view across here. And to, to do this is so, you know, again, there was a story just last night about Mark Zuckerberg having dinner with Trump at the White House with Peter Thiel. I don't care if he does that. Good for him. He can have dinner. With, like, lots of CEOs have president dinner with the president. And people shouldn't attack him for doing that. Like, again, that's kind of ridiculous and to create good relations. But again, being part of a campaign ad which is a lie, is, is to me a step too far. And it's completely off-brand for Apple in that regard. Even if they get their tariff relief that they're looking for, I, 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 don't, I just, right. I, I'm surprised. I'm, let me just say I'm surprised by it. And, but I'm Swisher. not running Apple, so I don't know. Kara Swisher, thank you so very much. It's great to Thanks. see you this morning. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. He was always in a chopper. You think we should do that in our next commercial? Why not? You can throw a chopper in there. Squawk chopper. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.